It is July the 4th, Independence Day in America. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street and around the world. If you're not American, celebrate anyway. Have a hot dog on us. We'll let you. You can be honorary for one day. If you can't get here, you can be here in spirit. Uh, We love our country. Hope you are celebrating this July the 4th with your family and loved ones and are enjoying it. Hope you have a great weekend on this holiday Monday. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us on Hertel. We're going to talk about the 4th of July today here in just a minute. Also, a cool story. One of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, not just the musical version, the real life guy. There's been a long struggle over a letter of his that was stolen. It's been returned. It's gone on display in time for the 4th of July. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Also, we have to go overseas. A story we've been covering uh, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine when Russia and Putin invaded that country. We said there was going to be catastrophic worldwide consequences to food, and it's here. Uh, Washington Post story, we're going to go over to Africa, Somalia, and some adjacent countries, the absolute horrific famine that is falling upon that land because of that. We'll cover that in just a little bit. Also, uh, we always end on a good note. What's more American than baseball? Well, youth baseball and youth baseballs for some very special kids and adults that face challenges, but get to enjoy the game. Uh, Also one of the best sports pictures I've ever seen in my life. We'll cover that in our end of the show segment. We always try to end on good note here on Hertel, and it is becoming a tradition. We did it last 4th of July. He's back again this 4th of July, our buddy Ben Harris from over in the UK. A little tongue-in-cheek, we're going to talk to one of our British buddies on July the 4th, but we're going to talk about the good stuff other than some little good nature joking about them being 0-2 against us. Uh, Ben's a really smart guy. He works in Parliament for an MP, knows what's going on. He's also written extensively. Uh, he did uh, his schoolwork on the special relationship between our two countries. It's a cool way to look at the 4th of July. We did it last year, doing it again this year, talking some of the cross-pollination, how our medias have become a little bit more like each other, how our country went from revolution to being very, very good friends and allies over many, many years. Also going to talk about uh, part of that relationship, the World War II generation that's passing off the scene, some of the things we've been covering here. The way he brought up an excellent point I didn't think of is that the end of that era for them is going to be the queen herself. He'll talk about that. Ben Harris on the program today. Don't miss that. But let's start with the 4th of July. Um, Every year we do this, but this year it seems to be a little more um, prevalent than usual. We have this run of the political class, the chattering class, the commentariat, and the people that are way too online. And I say that because I am one of them who started on this thing of, well, should we even be celebrating the 4th of July? Or I'm not celebrating the 4th of July. Or what does the 4th of July mean to me? Or it doesn't mean anything to me because of X, Y, and Z politics and policies and whatever's going on in the news. I get all that. One of the great parts about being an American is you get to say whatever you want about America because you have that freedom. You don't like it, you can trash it. We have these freedom of speech things. So even if you don't like the country that provides you that ability to have that speech, you can say pretty much whatever you want about it. God bless America. So a lot of people are doing that online. 
I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not here to change hearts and minds. We're just here to talk and turn down the noise of the news cycle. Uh, I suspect that's more of a minority than what is portrayed in our news media because the news media is a business model and they need you to click on things and you either agree with that or more predominantly people get outraged by it and click on it and they respond and interact with it with you know a wave of fighting back there's also other things i understand we have ugly things in our history i understand we have ugly things going on right now america is a big diverse complicated country there's never been a time where all americans agreed on anything and there's been times where we've really disagreed on really important things. We've fought civil wars. We've had civil rights movements. We've had civil unrest. We've gotten through some really ugly stuff over some really important issues. And we have really important issues going on right now. So how do we talk about unity? Because it's fair to point out, people say, well, you can't just wave a flag and sing a song and make everything better. No, you can't. Same time, you also can't just say, well, everything's horrible, so I hate my country and I'm not celebrating anymore. You can do that, but you're not really accomplishing anything. I thought we'd go back into history. Uh, interesting person from the Revolutionary War. Let's see what he has to say about it. He had some grievances himself. And I want you to hear in his own words very eloquently how he addressed them. Uh, this is from the American Battlefield Monument Commission, battlefields.org. Excellent organization. Uh, we talk about them usually on uh, Memorial Day. They manage the cemeteries both domestically, but also the ones abroad, the ones, especially the famous ones in Europe and elsewhere. Um, great organization. If you ever get a chance to visit any of those places, do so. This is from their website, battlefields.org. We'll link to it in the show notes. American revolutionary hero you may not know about. His name is Peter Harris. Um, born in 1753, Peter Harris was a Catawba Indian who served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Now, he was raised near present-day Fort Mill, South Carolina, and a smallpox epidemic descended on his village and the surrounding area when he was three years old, wiping out his half of his tribe and almost all of his family, killing his parents. He remained in the village for a few more years until he was taken in by Thomas Spratt, a nearby farmer and close friend of the tribe. As the Revolutionary War came to fruition, Members of the Catawba tribe allied themselves with the Patriot cause and supported local South Carolina and Georgia militias. While the Indians respected the colonists' fight for independence, some supported the Patriots to oppose the Cherokees, who were aligned with the British and their dominance in northern Georgia and western South Carolina. Either which way, in June of 1777, Harrison enlisted as a private in the battalion of Georgia Minutemen to fight for American independence. Two years later, uh, he was in Captain Oliver Tao's company of the Carolina Regiment, where he served until he was gravely wounded at the Battle of Stono Ferry. After recovering from his wounds, he returned to active service, joining Gen General Thomas Sumner's Militia Brigade. With this brigade, he fought many battles, including Rocky Mount, Hanging Rock, and Blackstock Farm. In recognition of his service, Peter Harris received a 200-acre land bounty grant on fishing creek in chester county south carolina in 1794 25 years later in 1822 now elderly and infirmed he petitioned the state of north south carolina for a pension writing them and these are his own words i want you to listen carefully to this man's words as he wrote them to the south carolina uh government and legislator trying to get a pension for his revolutionary war service and i want to listen to them in the context of these folks who debate how to celebrate the 4th of July. I think it's interesting perspective. These are the words of Peter Harris. 
to the councils of South Carolina. In the war for independence, I am one of the lingering embers of an almost extinguished race. Our graves will soon be our only habitations. I am one of the few stalks that still remain in the field where the tempest of the revolution passed. I fought against the British for your sake. The British have now disappeared, and you are free, yet from me the British took nothing, nor did I gain anything from their disappearing and defeat. I pursued the deer for my substance, and the deer are disappearing, and I must starve. God ordained me for the forest, and my ambition is the shade, but the strength of my arm decays, and my feet fail in the chase. The hand which fought for your liberty is now open for your relief. In my youth I bled in battle, that you might be independent. Let not my heart in my old age bleed for the want of your commiseration. His petition worked, reading back from the battlefield.org. And the South Carolina State Legislature granted Harris a pension of $60 a year on December 1822, almost exactly a year before he died. When he passed away in 1823, he was buried in the Spratt family burial ground, his adopted family, in Fort Mill, South Carolina. By his own request, his tombstone reads, the body of Peter Harris, a Catawba Indian, by his request was buried here in 1823. A patriot that fought for us, although he had a perspective different than what many of us would have about the revolution. I wonder if maybe his words will shed some light on how people feel about this big, complicated, often messy, but still the last best hope of free people everywhere on the face of the earth in this day and age, America. I want to read that last line one more time for you. In my youth, I bled in battle that you might be independent. Let not my heart in my old age bleed for the want of your commiseration. I wonder if we were to personify our nation or Lady Liberty or Uncle Sam or however else you want to put it. I wonder if you talk to our nation as a whole, looking back over its almost 250-year history now, our country isn't saying the same thing. And it's old age, still young for a country, we should not let our country's heart, what makes America great, what makes its people great, what makes us the greatest experiment in a free people self-governing in the history of humanity, bleed for lack of our commiseration. I hope you have a good 4th of July. Don't forget how we got it and how close we are always to not having it anymore. More hotel right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back 
Bright Hotel. Let's go overseas for a moment. We've been covering this story since the beginning because we told you this was coming, this was going to happen, and now it is happening. Uh, let's go to the Washington Post. We go overseas to Africa, um, Somalia particularly, but the other countries in that general area. Unlike previous hunger calamities, reading from the Washington Post here, this one is exacerbated by a conflict 3,000 miles away. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is fueling starvation in Somalia and other nations, abetting death, sickness, the disintegration of families, and the loss of livelihoods far from the war's front lines. Before the invasion, Ukraine and Russia were among the world's top producers and exporters of grains, cooking oils, and fertilizers, and together provided nearly all of Somalia's wheat. The disruption of crude oil from Russia has led to soaring costs for fuel, transportation, and food production. Food prices already at record levels here because of drought and pandemic have climbed even higher as Russia continues to block Ukraine's primary export route through the Black Sea. The crisis is now worse than any time in my lifetime working in Somalia for the last 20 years and has become compounded effect of the war in Ukraine, said Mohammed Mohammed Hassan, Somalia country director for the charity Save the Children. Communities are at a breaking point. Last month, Russia's defense minister offered to grant passage to ships carrying Ukrainian grain and other goods, but not until Western sanctions are lifted. Russia's blockade has been declared a war crime by the European Union, top policy officials, quote, you cannot use the hunger of people as a weapon of war, implored Joseph Burrell last week at a meeting of the EU ministers in Luxembourg. That's exactly what they're doing. But anyway, more than 18 million people in Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya are now facing acute food insecurity. According to the United Nations, about 7 million of them are Somalis, nearly half the nation's population with almost 250,000 at risk of imminent starvation. Many communities haven't fully recovered from the last drought in 2017 or the last famine in 2011. The first quarter this year, more than half a million Somalis fled their homes in search of food, an outflow of desperation that is rising each day. And Somalia's children are the most vulnerable. The UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, says 1.4 million younger than five face acute malnutrition. UN data shows 448 deaths of children in malnutrition centers from January to April. Yet the true number is much higher, the UN said, because many deaths go on counting. Children are dying in their homes and villages where aid workers fear to go from hunger and related illnesses such as measles and cholera. They're often buried in unmarked graves in the deserts or in the camps for the displaced, especially in that culture where they usually bury the same day that somebody dies. Over three days spent between the camps of Southern Somalia and the severe malnutrition ward of the hospital in Mogadishu, Washington Post journalists visited the graves of six children and learned of the passing of 11 others through interviews with displaced Somalis. None of the deaths had been reported to local authorities. Um, we talked about this when uh, Putin launched this illegal war of aggression, that this was going to have worldwide ramifications. This war is killing a lot of people outside of Ukraine, worldwide, Africa, parts of the Middle East parts of Southeast Asia, these places depend on these food shortages. Fuel prices are soaring. That means food costs go up anyway. And then when there's a shortage of food on top of it, it becomes catastrophic. We've talked about what's going on in Sri Lanka and other places. The world is a global community. These things have ripples and shockwaves. And people in Africa and other places are paying for the brutality of Vladimir Putin's aggression, greed, and power-hungry grab for parts of Ukraine. There's a lot of a body count. This one's not making as much headlines as the one in Ukraine do. And the Ukraine ones are barely making headlines because people start getting war fatigue in the West because we've got other stuff to do, unfortunately. 
but it's still real for Ukraine. This is going to be a very long, very bloody war. They've already been fighting since 2014, as we've talked about before. But the West has a fickle attention span, and it has even less of one when it comes to people dying of malnutrition in Africa, even though events in the Western part of the world, somewhat like Ukraine and Russia, are causing it. We'll keep talking about it, though, here on Hertel, and we'll do more of it right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we did this last year on the 4th of July. Might make it a tradition, so it's fun on Independence Day to talk to one of our Brit friends, Ben Harris, back on the program once again. Thankfully, not wearing an Aston Villa jersey that he rips <laughs> on and takes his sweater off right as I press record. Thank you for not doing that, my friend. Welcome back it's okay. to Herd Tell. It's out of season. So. Is there any such thing for uh, a Villa fan, though? You guys are always yeah, yeah, hoping for fun. the new day, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um. I mean, it wasn't too bad last season. We had some ups and downs, but uh, this new season starts in ooh, about a month and a half now, so it's not a long way. So, um, we made some good signs though. So I'm quietly confident, but we'll see. That'll probably be obliterated by September. Yeah. One nice thing about um being a, a soccer football fan is the off season is very short, especially in a World Cup year. It's pretty much non-existent, so that's a good thing. Um. All right, buddy. Well, this, we're do- well, this year it's uh, the world. I was just to say this year the World Cup is um, in November, December, so it's it's really crammed in the middle. It's not usually like that, but it's because yeah. it's in Qatar. So, yeah, and we're going to be talking plenty about that when that happens. But um, by the, by the way, we've got England in the first round, I believe, um, in the group stage. Uh, the US I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so that's that's going to be. A I think fun I actually one. might want I might want America to win because I don't actually like the English football team. If it was rugby, rugby I'd support England any day, but football. See, here we go. The hot takes are coming already. We haven't even dug in yet. Okay, it's the 4th of July. We did this last year. Uh, For folks that don't know, you've actually done quite a bit of work. You did your university work on the special relationship between England and America. It's pretty unique in world history. We've had, we've had, England's got a pretty good relationship with most of what used to be the empire, most of the old colonies. They're allies with almost all of them. Talk about for a minute, though, it is pretty unique in the history of the world what America and Britain has done together in the last, oh, I don't know, 240-odd years, isn't it? Yeah, I can't think of a, I mean, I guess it's, I can't think of, I mean, maybe there is, I mean, I'm not an expert in history, but I can't think of any period in history where you've had, essentially, the world's main superpower peacefully hand over to the, to the next one, which is what we did with the U.S. I mean, obviously, we were in conflict with the U.S. in the I don't know, 1700s, 18, early 1800s. But when that handover actually took place, if you could call it a handover in uh, sort of the late, the late 19th century, early 20th century, it, it was very peaceful. We, 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 we were on the same side in the same walls, so it wasn't like right at throats. And usually, that doesn't happen. Is it even comparable? And again, we're not history guys; we're just guys that you know admire each other's countries here. But you know, it is interesting that you had you know the Pax Britannica. Um, era of peace and the naval dominance especially of the royal navy that made worldwide trade as we know it now you know the building blocks of that the americans been a little different it's been more economic of course militarily in world war ii and we you know the marshall plan and reset the world order and then the cold war it really is amazing that these two countries 
you know, for the last, what, 300, 350 years, this has been the dominance of the Western part of the world. It is. And I think it's probably language plays a lot of part in that because there's there's always that shared language. And obviously a lot of, yeah, so it's, you know, it is quite unique. Obviously, as you know, a lot of your um, your founding fathers, they took from British ideals, French ones as well, but there was a lot of British ideals there. And, we, and the Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of way of doing things is, is, is very well known. So how does... um how did you how does the british folks view uh we make a big deal out of independence day obviously uh technology is such now with twitter that you know they're probably more aware of it and think about it more than they maybe did 10 15 years ago uh is it just kind of a funny thing how is it viewed when we really have our independence day there's some good nature joshing of course about it but what is the view of our independence day for over there I think aside from the, the good natured jokes, um, I think it's become more of a thing here than it used to be, probably because of social media. I mean, Black Friday, for example, is a good example. Black Friday, even when I was growing up, so talking, you know, 15 years ago, uh, even 10 years ago, Black Friday was not really a thing, whereas it very much is now. Not, maybe not as much as it is in the US, but it is a thing now. And uh, I think it's so, uh, social media down to that. And I think that's the same Independence Day. We do get a certain level of independence day stuff here not much but we do get a bit of uh, independence day things and obviously there's always the, the jokes but oh, we, you'd be better off if you're of the queen that sort of thing so um yeah I, I think it's social media has brought us together a little bit and we, we we're increasingly you're getting our trends and we're getting your trends it's so fascinating we were talking i was talking to another friend of ours online the other day and and there's kind of this running joke that america doesn't have a singular culture that it exports to the rest of the world and i was like well, that's interesting because the rest of the world sure does copy a lot of it and complain about it a lot. So there must be some <laughs> kind of American culture. What do you see it, especially in England, where, you know, there's the common language, there's the history. There's a lot of overlap there, obviously, when there comes to social media, because we can actually talk to each other because there's no language barrier. Mm. What is the American culture creep in England? You just mentioned that we're crossing cultures some. What's some of the obvious examples that you see over there that we probably don't think about? Well, I think the main one is uh, politically. There's a political culture crossover, and and a lot of Brits get really get really arsy about this, and they start going and rants about the American Empire and stuff. But this isn't something America is doing um, consciously. But we do get a lot of American cultural wars do tend to transport themselves here. My, and I have actually said this a year ago, but when I remember when the the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, um, we were getting similar things here about you know, the police, even though the police uh, and the, in the UK is totally different to policing in the US. You don't really get uh, police officers killing civilians. It just doesn't happen at all. I know it happens in the US, you know, depending on the situation, it happens you know, a fair bit, but it just doesn't happen at all. Where, where even then, during the protests, people were still acting as if the police here were killing, you know, people every day. That just doesn't, and the, certain, to a certain extent, the race stuff is as well, even though, again, it's a different story. Now, it's not saying we're better or worse, but there is a different history there. I don't think that's being taken into account. Let's talk media too, though. Um, the British press has always had their own flavor of doing things, but I've seen mm. a lot of cross pollination there lately. Our press has gotten, you know, especially the tabloidish uh, British media. We see a lot more that, you know, our TMZ and things like that are kind of more of that model than traditionally. And I've seen kind of the political media, you know, we're having an explosion, a lot of alternative networks, a lot of alternative news sites in British media. That's more of an American influence, I think. Mm. I think even in the straight news world, and of course, the BBC is partially publicly owned over there. So we need to get that out of the way. So the competition's a little different than America. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think there's some very clear examples there of cross-pollinations of culture when it comes, especially to the political media and how they're covering things, because it is a global yeah, right. media thing now. 
Yeah, the one thing I noticed actually in, in the last five years, especially, is the rise of what I would call the monologue. And personally, I don't like the monologue at all. Uh, I can't stand it. But even if you could do a monologue for 10 minutes and I would quickly agree with every single word of it, I still wouldn't like it because I just, the people giving these monologues are just broadcasters and so I couldn't care less what they think, left or right or centre or wherever. But that's one of the big things I've noticed is we're getting a lot of monologues now uh, where these broadcasters will sort of read these scripts and they'll give this monologue, um, which I didn't notice. And obviously, it's, it's sort of the, was it Bill O'Reilly that did it? Used to do it on Fox. Somebody used to do it on Fox and used to be well known for it. We've been getting that. And I think also we've been getting from Australia as well. So I think Sky News Australia, um, they own now, you know, some of the media here. So it's it's sort of come across that way as well, not just from the US, from Australia as well. Yeah, it was funny because you know, we have a we work with our young voices friends, they have a UK branch and I started getting media requests and they're like, Hey, can you do talk TV in Britain? And I'm like, What's that? I've never even heard of it. And then, you know, you have talk TV, talk radio, uh, GB News has started up now. It's not just, you know, BBC and Sky News yep. and Times Radio, which I've done Times Radio a few times now, which is, you know, except people don't realize the Times is the biggest newspaper in the world for the English language. Well, Times Radio is also new. Yeah. Times Radio but, is actually quite new. The Times yeah. obviously isn't, but Times Radio is new. Yeah. But that's a huge change. I mean, that's that would be like the New York Times here having its own media outlet, which they kind of do, but not to that level. Times, Times Radio is a big deal over there. And it's very interesting watching. This is all in the last yeah, three, yeah. four, or five years. Watching these media companies, these legacy news people, they find. I think they figured out to turn the corner in British media. Of okay, we've got to go digital. We've got to go multi-platform, just like the rest of the world. It's really been. You take something like the London, the Sunday Times. I don't know how long it's been in print. You know, hundreds of years. That's a pretty remarkable culture shift yeah. change for them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think it is probably partially to do with the since Brexit there's sort of there's been an explosion in sort of interest among regular people in politics i've noticed it just from people i talk people people i know who aren't really political who are now more political and more aware of what's going on or you know sort of they they get more information because there is i guess it's infotainment isn't it infotainment is becoming a big thing over here it, it wasn't 10 15 years ago but it very much is now and obviously the, the newspapers have to adapt to that um, because obviously, unlike you would know, obviously, unlike in the US, um, you know, sort of the newspapers are um, the national newspapers, which we, which we get, who they back in the election is a very big deal. It's it's traditionally seen there who the, the Sun, for example, when they back someone, that's seen as a really big deal. And I don't think you have that in the US where the newspapers still hold such a big uh, hold over public opinion. Although, of course, the endorsements of the newspapers is sort of lessening in, in importance nowadays, because as you say, social media is becoming all important. No, and to the point. I actually wrote a piece about it when it happened. The New York Times did this multi-day reveal of who their endorsement was going to be, which is as close to a national paper as America has. It's, you know, them and the Washington Post pretty much, all due respect to everybody else. They had this big reveal of who they were going to endorse. And the the elevator lady, who's the, the security lady in the elevator gushing over Biden, became the viral story of the whole thing and completely washed out the endorsement of the New York Times. That was the story. And it's such a <laughs> microcosm of how media works now that, and they did this gimmicky thing where they picked uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Gillibrand. They're like, well, may the best woman, you know, they, they kind of bailed out. They didn't stick the landing in picking their NBC. Yeah, yeah. But the, the viral moment was the real life closer to the working class woman in the elevator talking to Joe Biden. And it turned out to be, you know, kind of prophetic in how the campaign goes. So to your point, yeah, it, it's it's very, very different here. You know, we almost roll our eyes at newspaper endorsements anymore because they're just not because everything's digital media. Y'all kind of backwards where it's it's just now catching up to digital media, but you can see a trend that way. I wonder if it's this. This is just me spitballing a little bit, but I've got to think because news media is a business. 
right and you've probably seen this working around parliament a lot because you see them you see when they set up on the green across the street you know you know something's going on right there's no yeah. way they didn't look at the coverage and the clicks and the ratings for brexit and go hmm this has been a lot of money for the last two three years we should figure out a way to keep this money train going I think Brexit was an eye-opening moment to them on how they're going to cover things business model-wise going forward. It's got to be because they got great ratings for it because everybody was engaged in it. The whole country was very engaged in it. And when that goes yeah. away, your ratings go down. I think that has to be part of the media environment now in England, doesn't it? Well, I agree. I think I think one thing Brexit did do, this is, it was a case for both Remain and Leave. I, I supported Leave, but I wasn't, you know, I vote Leave again, but I'm not like a 100% diehard Leave, no matter what. But, I, you know, the one thing about Brexit was it, it did highlight the culture culture side of things. Um, although the campaign itself was quite a policy one, the, the certainly in the aftermath, it's pretty clear that there's a Remain Britain and a Leave Britain, which actually has separate ideals on things, which actually had nothing to do with the EU. I mean, there are people who who you know probably are actually amb, you know ambivalent towards the EU, but are staunch Remainers because of what they feel that culture represents, and likewise for the Leavers. So and I think you know media has tried to capitalize on that, and they've they've sort of seen well this is this is where it's going now. Most nowadays people I feel like nowadays um, there's there's a, there's, a, there's a higher a lower a lower ceiling but also a floor for a politician's support. I feel like the you know it's, it's a lot less inflexible now than it used to be because of cultural wars. People are just going to back their side no matter what, and they pick the side and they follow it like I do a football team. It's very similar to that. At least I feel like, as a sports fan, it very it feels very similar to how I back my teams. It's, it's this very tribal, well, I'll back on no matter what sort of thing. Yeah, and let's not get into uh, football and backing teams. We'll be here all day. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK, <laughs> continuing the tradition of talking to, or as they call it, oh for two day over yonder, uh, American Independence Day, talking to our British friend. Um, we joke about it. One of the great honors in my life, though, and, and I've got this on my mind because Woody Williams just died. That's the last Medal of Honor recipient uh, from World War II generation for mm. the American side. I, saw that, yeah. I remember I was, and it just happened by accident, I was in London for the 60th anniversary of D-Day. And I, I was actually, you know, uh, on the HMS Belfast. They were actually filming a, a documentary on the fantail of the ship. I got to meet some of the British um, veterans of that con. Just one of the real honors of my life. I'm just, just, just saying, sitting and talking to these guys because they were all queued up to go do interviews and things. And just by happenstance, I got to talk to them. Um, that generation's almost gone. Uh, we're very aware of it in America, of course. Ooh. Same thing in England. That generation is just about gone. I don't know what the numbers there are. We're down, we're down into the low um, hundred thousands and dwindling quickly. Is, is there a sense in England as well? Because that's mm-hmm. kind of the last war we really fought together. Not that we weren't in, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and other parts of the world, but that's the one everybody thinks about is us coming to World War II, Britain standing alone, and yeah. the American came alongside. That's just a big part of the mythology for both of our countries. Uh, is there a danger of that sliding into history a little bit with that generation passing away? Is there an understanding of, like, this is a title shift, that this generation is almost gone, and we're just going to read about them, we're not going to be able to talk to them anymore? Um, I don't think the special relationship, or whatever you want to call the US-UK relationship, will change much in relation to that. But what, the one thing I do feel, the one thing that will be the big change is uh, and hopefully it's not for a few years yet. It's when the Queen dies because that will be she is seen as sort of the last remaining um, sort of you know she actually did serve in World War Two uh, to an extent as a mechanic I think as a volunteer mechanic so and and she is seen as sort of the last uh, remaining holder from that time so I think when she does go that will be 
know, that being and more than anything else, a big thing because it will signal a sort of change of the guard. And as you like you said, it's the numbers are, are quickly dwindling. Um, you know, we, it's you know, I think I think to, to have it to have served in World War Two now, you have to be close to a hundred at least now. I mean, you get into that point now, so it's it's uh, unfortunately that's a bit of history we're losing. But I think it's the, the World War Two because it's seen as the last good war that is still in people's minds. And I think even people who who don't even have any family they spoke to who served in the war, people who don't even have grandparents who were who are old enough to have served in it. I do think there still is a very much alive today because we do learn about it a lot in school. And it's driven it's driven to us a lot. You know, Winston Churchill and sort of the mythology around Britain in World War Two is a big thing here still. So I don't think that we will lose that talking point. I think that'll always be there. Because I know you guys also have a similar uh, you know, you see the World War Two as the last good war as well. And it's it's you know, Korea's forgotten, Vietnam is is sort of seen as the bad war and it's it's very similar over here in terms of how you see the war world war ii um so i don't think we're gonna lose much i, I lose much in terms of how we communicate with each other but of course the experiences that um the first time experiences you know that we lose will be you know impossible to, to value yeah it's interesting because just in my lifetime i'm not that old i'm just i just turned 42 when i was a kid if you saw any elderly man you basically assumed they were a world war ii vet that's how you know just you just assumed it and now they're almost all gone just, just in the last 30, 40 years. It's just the way time works. It's a really fascinating thing. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in England, we're going to keep talking to him about England, about America, the special relationship, a little politics too, just because uh, he, he runs amongst the halls of parliament. So he's got all the good scuttle, but we'll touch in on that. We'll continue with our friend Ben Harris, his Independence Day edition of Hertel right after Ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. Been talking just a little bit of history, uh, our shared countries on this Independence Day in America. Uh, you do work around Parliament and in the halls of mm -hmm. Parliament. Uh, so let's talk UK politics for just a second. Just an outside observer, we've been talking to our UK friends a lot lately because there's a lot of news on it. I'm just, I'm just going to make the general statement. It, on the outside looking in, uh, neither uh, Prime Minister Johnson nor the right honorable opposition in the form of uh, uh, Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour neither one of these individuals are exactly covering themselves in glory right now. This, this right. seems to be just kind of like y'all kind of muddling through a down period where it's like, well, Johnson's not great, but he's kind of Teflon and there's nobody else. So we're kind of stuck with him and Starmer's got his own problem. This, this kind of seems just like a little bit of malaise, this current period in uh, UK politics. Does it feel that way there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, it's not just the leaders. I mean, to be fair, he's a big improvement on Corbyn. I'll give him that, but he is—he's very much failing to inspire people. And that's of course, a low Boris bar Johnson to be fair. So many <laughs> yeah, 
It is. And then Boris Johnson, of course, has so many personal issues. His problems aren't really uh, policy-wise. They're, they're mainly just in, in a, getting things done in government because the government, it just feels so dysfunctional. And two, it's his personal life, which is, just keeps on intruding onto the job. Um, but it's not just that. It's also the, the MPs in general. There are a lot of MPs who it's becoming clear you know, should not be MPs. I mean, my boss is, is great. I always I always pick up for him. He's been, a, he's been an excellent boss. But there are lots of MPs who they just, you know, all the scandals we've had recently, both sides, they're just not a, not a cut for it. And they just, all they seem to do is just focus on, you know, they're, they're sort of pointless social media stuff. And, you know, they're, um, they'll get up in the chamber and they'll give us, they'll give a speech about something. They'll just blare out loads of inaccuracies. And they get on scare. It's just for social media. It's not actually for anything else. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. We're talking about cross-cultural stuff. We got the same problem here. I, we just had our buddy Eric Garcia on who covers uh, Congress for the independent of all things. Um, and he talks about it and we talked about it on the show. It's like, you know, there's basically two kinds of, of Congress people and U.S. senators here because we have a bicameral house. House of Lords is a different beast for y'all. So basically yeah. it's parliament. Um, you have two kinds of people. You have the people that are there and they do the show and they do the the fundraising. And then you have a very small cadre of people who actually do the deals and know people and get things done and make the deals and move legislation. It's interesting that you're saying that because we have the same problem here is kind of the the media superstar Congress people. When you talk to the reporters and when legislation goes through and you start looking at the headlines of who actually wrote it, mm. it's almost it's almost always two different sets of people. And we've seen that here, too. I think it's social media because we have the social media superstars who play the public media part of politics and then you still got the old school ones who go and they actually do the job it's funny it just seems to be universal in uh, parliamentary politics doesn't it well what would say actually is that i think uh it, that doesn't have as much real effect as of how how systems work i know that in the u.s um party sort of the party line is knowing they're as strong as it is here here you, you know if you're an mp you've got to vote with the government on most pretty much everything and if you don't you know that, that you're in big trouble whereas i, I know that there uh, representatives and especially senators do get a bit more independence. So um, here it's, you know, they'll do the social media stuff, but they'll still work with the government anyway. So it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we, we get as much of a slowdown in government as you would there, but yeah, it does, it does slow things down. It does prevent problems from being resolved. Yeah. It's interesting just how the systems work because there's good and bad to that, that we have weaker parties. You know, we all have a two-party system, but you got to remind people, it's like, yeah. yeah, but it's there. It, it's a great example of this was I did, um, I was doing some British media uh, the, when the Uvalde shooting happened and they're interviewing you because they want the American and you have to just kind of slow walk them through. It's like, with something like gun legislation, which we passed something that was, you know, kind of a middling piece of legislation, but you have to slow walk a UK audience through it because it's so different. It's like, no, Congress can't just pass a law. It's not like parliament where with a few legal exceptions, Pretty much whatever yeah. Parliament says, go like that's not how it works here. Like even if you got it through, there's still judicial review. There's still the executive branch. Like you know, Congress can't just pass something that's a constitutional amendment through law. And I'm just using that as the example of it's a whole different mindset when you have Parliament. Something like Brexit could never happen in America because you'd never get it through, and then it would be tied up in the Supreme Court for 30 years. And y'all got it done in a you relatively states, short period. Yeah. And you had it through in a relatively short period of time. It's just a very very different system. Uh, yeah, it is. And, but obviously Brexit, we almost didn't get it through. And I mean, that, that was that really did push it to the breaking point. I remember 2019, uh, 2018, sort of around that time, it was absolute chaos. Um, we had all sorts of norms being busted. 
And in fairness to Boris Johnson, he's not done much yet, but he did manage to through. But even that was only done through an election. It was essentially some, but yeah, it's yeah, it, it can be easier to get things done because obviously we don't have the state government. I mean, counties here, which are equivalent to your state, counties are basically they don't have much control over anything. Certainly, you can't have different abortion laws between counties, for example. Yeah, and that's going to be a mess for the rest of the year. But let's leave that for another day. All right, uh, Ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. All right, uh, real quick, the minute we got left here. Uh, let folks know where to follow you on social media, because um, I love following you, even though you hate garlic, which is, you know, a major <laughs> character flaw, but we'll deal with that. Another. But one one quick story from you on why you love America so much, even though you are a Brit, you, and despite it all, you're a Baltimore Orioles fan for some odd reason, I'll never understand. But let people know your social media and tell them just for our Independence Day why you love our America so very, very much. Oh, I don't know, really. I've always, I guess I've always consumed American culture since I was a kid, like most people do. Um, I think there's something about that more individualistic mindset that Americans have, which I really have always been drawn to. And they say here, you know, everything is bigger in America and there is just so much there uh, when it comes to, when it comes to sort of the land, the people, it is, yeah, it's a lot of Brits are quite um, bitter towards America, but I don't see it that way. I mean, the way I see it, someone's got to do, you know, the well, you know, if it's not us, then, you know, it's better than you guys than anyone else. So, and uh, speaking of which, we got to get you over here soon for a visit, my friend. Oh, I would love to. I'd love to come over. Uh, West Virginia's on my list. I'm, I plan to visit every state. I've done eight so far, I think, in my life, so plus DC. So, uh, yeah, I will visit West Virginia someday and North Carolina. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, it's a great place. We'll be happy to host you. Um, don't get a whole lot of Brits there, so you'll be a, you'll be very popular. I promise you. Uh, <laughs> ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. Uh, the special relationship, uh, our friends over in England from whence we came, uh, just took us two wars in a couple of years to forgive everybody about it, but we're good friends now. Ben Harris, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Appreciate it. Hey, family. Thank you. Sir. Hertel, 4th of July is a good time to bring up this story. Uh, CNN, a letter written by Alexander Hamilton, one of American's founding fathers. Yes, that's what he actually did before he became a musical. He was a real guy for uh, those of you from Logan. Thought Lost for Decades is finally going on display at the Commonwealth Museum in Massachusetts. Written by Hamilton in 1780 to the Marquis de Lafayette, the letter is believed to have been stolen from the Massachusetts State Archive during World War II, according to the news release from William Francis Galvin, secretary to the Commonwealth. Hamilton, who was then the captain of the New York Artillery Company and sent the letter during the end of the Revolutionary War, Lafayette, of course, was a French aristocrat who was aiding the Americans in the fight against the British. In the letter, Hamilton warned Lafayette of enemy forces coming to Rhode Island and endangering French troops. An archive employee who stole the letter was arrested in 1950 and found to have sold it along with other documents to rare book dealers, according to the Massachusetts court filing. But in November of 2018, the letter emerged at an auction house in Alexandria, Virginia, before coming into custody of the FBI the following year. Uh, if you really, really liked um, National Treasure, this is some real life stuff here. The Commonwealth Museum, back to CNN. Fourth of July exhibit is the first opportunity the public will have to see the letter since it was returned to Massachusetts. 
the news release said. The exhibit also includes original documents from the 18th century, like a letter from John Hancock to the Massachusetts Assembly announcing independence from Great Britain and a letter from George Washington to the Massachusetts General Court, copy of the Declaration of Independence. Hamilton has gained renewed attention in recent years because of the pop culture icon due to the massive popularity of the Broadway musical. Trust me, my one kid listened to that thing on a loop for weeks. I know all about it. Anyway, cool 4th of July story, Alexander Hamilton. No, I'm not going to sing about it. His letter is for display in Massachusetts. If you're up there, make sure you go check that out. You can also see it online. They have a digitized copy of it. Cool piece of history. More Hertel on this 4th of July right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Okay, our end of the show segment, we always try to do something uplifting. It is the 4th of July. What's more American than baseball? What's more American than kids playing baseball? Kids with special needs playing baseball and a whole lot of joy. If for no other reason, you have to click this article to see the cover photo. It is one of the coolest photos. It's a uh, little kid coming into home plate about two feet off the ground, arms in the air, jumping onto home plate. It's just a picture of pure joy. They didn't credit the photo, whoever took it. It's a fantastic picture. But anyway, uh, Mason, Ohio, an Ohio baseball league that gives kids and adults with disability a chance to play is celebrating its 10th season with a home run as they are preparing for a major game and also getting closer to a dream fundraising goal. A swing and a hit gets the crowd going wild. It's all for the kids and the adults who make up the Mason Challenger League. The goal is to make sure everyone gets to play. There's a bunch of quotes here. I love some of these quotes. I'm just going to read you these, kind of pick them out a little bit. Uh, Hopefully I don't get stage fright during it. One of the players said, I really look forward to supporting my team and representing Mason in the World Series this year, said Sidney Rotterer, another player. There's no lack of love for the league. League Commissioner Susan Murdoch said the family and friends plan to bring all their energy to Williamsport. That's where they do the Little League World Series. Really special place if you ever get a chance to go. Uh, quote for the kids, I think this is going to bring wonderful memories and they're going to get me some of the other kids from California. And then for their parents, it's like a bucket list that they get to check off. It's all part of a bigger goal, a field of dreams. Mason Challenger League is raising $2 million to build two specially adapted baseball fields that will meet the needs of the kids with disabilities. Um, we're getting closer and closer to the goal and then they will have their own fields to play on that are designed specifically for him, for them. Murdoch said, baseball has been a really important part of my life, Rotterer said. I'm glad to actually have some sport to compete in. The Challenger League will their game at the Little League World Series on August 27th. You can be looking for that. We have a link in the show notes if you want to check out the uh, charity, MasonChallengerAdaptiveFields.com. Cool story. Love that kind of stuff. My mom is a special eds teacher, so I always 
gravitate to those stories. But again, you got to see this photo. It is just the perfect embodiment of everything that can be good about youth sports. We need uplifting stuff like that in this day and age. That'll do it for her telling us 4th of July. I uh, hope you and yours, wherever you are, are enjoying it, celebrating our freedom, celebrating our great country. If you're one of our overseas friends, great, celebrate anyway. Have a hot dog on us. It'll do your culture a little bit of good. We appreciate you wherever you are across the street around the world, listening, watching, supporting Hertel. Make sure you reach out to us at Hertel Show at gmail.com, Hertel Show at the Twitter. And of course, my Twitter feed, Four for the Fire. And our guest is on the lower third graphics. Make sure you're following and supporting them. Our good friend Ben Harris today, two years in a row, might have to make it a tradition talking to him on the 4th of July. So, y'all, wherever you are, hope you're well. Hope you're well fed. Have a great 4th of July. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.